stories about black history, 10 things your child should know, and computer science courses, all things you can learn more about on blackineducation.com. I was born by a golden river in the shadow of two great hills, five years after the Emancipation Proclamation. The house was quaint, with clapboards running up and down, neatly trimmed, and there were five rooms, a tiny porch, a rosy front yard, and unbelievably delicious strawberries in the rear. A South Carolinian, lately come to Berkshire Hills, owned all this. Tall, thin, and black, with golden earrings, and given to religious trances. We were his transient tenants for the time. My own people were part of a great clan. Fully 200 years before, Tom Burghardt had come through the Western Pass from the Hudson with his Dutch captor, Conrad Burghardt. Sullen in his slavery, and achieving his freedom by volunteering for the revolution at a time of sudden alarm. His wife was a little black Bantu woman who never became reconciled to this strange land. She clasped her knees and rocked and crooned, Duk Benakoba, Jinemi Jinemi, Bendanuli Bendele. Tom died about 1787, but of him came many sons and one Jack who helped in the War of 1812. Of Jack and his wife Violet, was born a mighty family, splendidly named, Harlow and Ira, Chloe, Lucinda, Maria, and Othello. I dimly remember my grandfather Othello, or Uncle Talo, a brown man, strong-voiced, and redolent with tap tobacco, who sat stiffly in a high, great high chair because his hip was broken. He was probably a bit lazy and given to a cell. At any rate, grandmother had a shrewish tongue and often berated him. This grandmother was Sarah. Aunt Sally, a stern, tall Dutch African woman, beaked nose, but beautiful-eyed and golden-skinned. Ten or more children were theirs, of whom the youngest was Mary, my mother. Mother was a dark, shining bronze, with a tiny ripple in her black hair, black-eyed with a heavy, kind face. She gave one the impression of infinite patience, but a curious determination was concealed in her softness. The family were small farmers on Egremont Plain between Great Barrington and Sheffield, Massachusetts. The bits of land were too small to support the great families born on them, and we were always poor. I never remember being cold or hungry, but I do remember that shoes and coal and sometimes flour caused mother moments of the anxious thought in winter, and a new suit was an event. At about the time of my birth, economic pressure was transmitting the family, generally from farmers, to hired help. Some revolted and migrated westward. Others went cityward as cooks and barbers. Mother worked for some years at house service in Great Barrington, and after a disappointed love episode with a cousin who went to California, she met and married Alfred Du Bois and went to town to live by the Golden River where I was born. Alfred, my father, must have seen the splendid vision in that little valley under the shelter of those mighty hills. He was small and beautiful of face and feature, just tinted with the sun, his curly hair chiefly revealing his kinship to Africa. In nature, he was a dreamer, romantic, indolent, kind, unreliable. He had in him the making of a poet, an adventurer, or a beloved vagabond, according to the life that closed around him, and that life gave him all too little. His father, Alexandre Dubois, cloaked under a stern, austere demeanor, a passionate revolt against the world, he, too, was small, but squarish. I remember him as I saw him first, in his home in New Bedford, 
white hair, clothes cropped, a steam, hard face, but high in tone, with a gray eye that could twinkle or glare. Long years before him, Louis XIV drove two Huguenots, Jacques and Louis Dubois, into wild Ulster County, New York. One of them, in the third or fourth generation, had a descendant, Dr. James Dubois, a gay, rich bachelor who made his money in the Bahamas, where he and the Gilberts had a plantations. There he took a beautiful little mulatto slave as his mistress, and two sons were born, Alexander in 1803 and John later. They were fine, straight, clear-eyed boys, white enough to pass. He brought them to America and put Alexander in the celebrated Cheshire School in Connecticut. Here he often visited him, but one last time he fell dead. He left no will, and his relations made short shrift of these sons. They gathered in the property, a prince grandfather to a shoemaker, and then dropped him. Grandfather took his bitter dose like a thoroughbred. Wild as was his inner revolt against his treatment, he uttered no word against the thieves and made no plea. He tried his fortunes here and in Haiti, where during his short, restless sojourn, my own father was born. Eventually, Grandfather became chief steward on a passenger boat between New York and New Haven. Later, he was a small merchant in Springfield. And finally, he retired and ended his days at New Bedford. Always he held his head high, took no insults, made few friends. He was not a Negro, he was a man. Yet the current was too strong even for him. Then, even more than now, a colored man had colored friends or none at all, lived in a colored world or lived alone. A few fine, strong black men gained the heart of this silent, bitter man in New York and New Haven. If he had scant sympathy with their social clannishness, he was with them in fighting discrimination. So when the white Episcopalians of Trinity Parish, New Haven, showed plainly that they no longer wanted black folk as Christians, he led the revolt which resulted in St. Luke's Parish and was for years a senior warden. He lies dead in the Grove Street Cemetery beside Jehudi Eshman. Beneath his sternness was a very human man. Slyly he wrote poetry, stilted, pleading things from a soul astray. He loved women in his masterful way, marrying three beautiful wives in succession and clinging to each with a certain desperate, even unsympathetic affection. As a father, he was naturally a failure, hard, domineering, unyielding. His four children reacted characteristically. One was, until past middle life, a thin spinster. The mental image of her father. One died. One passed over into the white world, and her children's children are now white, with no knowledge of their Negro blood. The fourth, my father, bent before my grandfather, but did not break. Better if he had. He yielded and flared back, asked forgiveness and forgot why became the harshly held favorite who ran away and rioted and roamed and loved and married my brown mother. <laughs>